0: It's too much. You either have to put the microphone input lower. Okay. Okay, so now you can all go back because the microphone (laughs) works. So let us continue (coughs) with our reading of the fundamental teachings given by Jesus. We are in the Gospel according to Matthew and we are in the 10th chapter. So you remember it is at the moment in time when Jesus is sending the 12 apostles for the winter time in their mission of preaching and he is giving them so many beautiful teachings of spiritual values, especially for those people who transmit spiritual knowledge and I think the last paragraphs which we read last time <coughs> when we met and spoke about these things were the number 32 and 33 where he says, <coughs> Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And we explained that this is a function of each one's subconscious mind, that this is the way in which the divine consciousness is like a reflection to our own aspirations, to our own being. And now we continue with the first saying which comes afterwards. Jesus says one of his paradoxical things. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn, and he quotes from the prophets, from the prophet Micah, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And he ends with a terrible saying, saying a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This statement contains so many shocking things, so many provocative things. He first says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You can take it at a symbolic value. First of all, that the sword is the symbol at the same time of the tongue, of the word, of the speech. Therefore, Jesus is typical for the power of the speech. His word is like a sword. His word is giving this knowledge which cuts through. And at the same time, the sword is a typical symbol of discrimination, the power of discrimination between what is right and what is wrong. And automatically discriminating splits the reality in two. If I discriminate between what is right and what is wrong, between what is light and what is dark, this discrimination will automatically create war. There will be conflict between light and darkness. As long as they are not separate, there is a chaos. There is a cohabitation of them. But in the moment when they are separate, they automatically will fight with each other. There will exist a conflict. Therefore, Jesus says it at some other part. It's like he says, with me, he says there is no choice. The good will come with the good, the bad will go with the bad. It's like selecting the wheat from the weed. It's like now or never. Now you have to decide. You are on the right hand of God or you are on the left side of God. Are you with or you are against. Are you with me or not? Enough with fumbling. Enough with fooling around. That means there may be a time where God is not addressing you specially. And then you can fool around. Are you with? Are you not with? Well, who knows? It's kind of you can live it like this. And there will be a time sometimes a whole life can pass and God is not asking you to take a stand. Whom are you with? What do you actually do? All your life is flowing in some ambiguity that is in a certain way good because it gives you time But in another way it is bad because it's like God doesn't even want to give you a test. You are not even tested. So in this way it's like you are abandoned, you are forgotten, you are in the slow lane, you are not moving in the fast lane of evolution where there are tests, where there are choices to be made. And therefore... It's like nothing is happening but suddenly the divine consciousness can pay attention to you and then it says choose what will you do now. And then it's this kind of moment which is now or never. And this this is exactly the psychology of Jesus. Jesus says while I was not around you could beat around the bush and Pretend you were what you were. God left you alone and you are in the middle of this fuzzy, fluffy thing. Maybe, maybe not, you are kind in the middle of something non- Distinct, not separated. It is. This is illustrated very beautifully in the work in alchemy. The alchemists of the old days, when they described the work in the human being, they said, first of all, you have to go over the initial chaos. Because the human being in the beginning, it's like wheat and weed mixed together. It's like you cannot see the difference. And it's a mixture of food, grains of food, and grains of sand, or whatever, as a comparison. It's like a mixture of things. And therefore, what you do in alchemy is that you put fire under the athanor, you put fire under the oven, which is the human heart, actually, which is the symbol, the symbol of some precise techniques. And with that fire, you are going to separate the higher from the lower. This separation, it's exactly like milk turns into cheese. And suddenly you have the cheesy part and you have the the juice, the transparent juice which is coming out of the cheese so it's kind of a separation in the beginning this separation is not visible so it's like the human being has to separate the light from the darkness, the good from the evil until then there is like no structure it's like the consciousness is so primitive you are so much in svadistana you are so close to the world of the animals that actually you haven't yet come to the humanizing function of having a conscience when you have a conscience there are things which are good there are things which are bad there is a conflict inside you and that conflict if you were animal and indifferent you wouldn't have that conflict You'll just lie down and say, no, I'm not having any conflict. But when you are more developed, there appears automatically a conflict. That conflict, Jesus says, there comes a time when you are ripe for that conflict. There comes a time when that conflict comes in your life. And in his own case, he says, I am that conflict. I am the sword of God who has come to decide between light and darkness. That means all those of you who meet with me or hear about me, today the day of your test has come. God does not postpone you anymore. Now it's time to choose. Are you with me or are you with? Are you not with me? That means are you with the light? Or are you with the darkness? In this way, Jesus is creating this extraordinary polarization. And that is why he says, I come to create, to bring a sword. And that sword would paradoxically bring apparently a lot of trouble. That means because of Jesus, a lot of people did a lot of things. For 200 or 300 years, the Christians were persecuted, killed, martyrized, thrown to the lions, crucified, whatever. And it's kind of what peace did this man bring? Actually, he brought a teaching which stirred the hell out of everybody. It kind of the shit hit the fan more than ever in history with this man called Jesus, it's like really he didn't give peace to anybody he gave a lot of choices, a lot of hard choices, a lot of conflict inside, a lot of revolution inside in which a lot of people had to change themselves to make choices to choose their life. That is why, remember that this is a wrong interpretation. Some modern people, modern people, and I mean especially since the time of politicians have started pretending that they are Christians, uh, especially since the time of Renaissance and so on, where Christianity has become, in especially in the Western world, it has become just a ridiculousness and a social formality, Uh, especially in this kind of environment, then uh, many people have started replacing the original message of Jesus, which is raw, dangerous, tantalizing, which is really a message of being wild, wild for God, they started replacing it with something more civilized. They started watering it down, making it diluted, so it should be something social. Uh, what you do when you are a Christian... Yeah, you go every Sunday to the church and you are a good citizen and you do some charity and you do a little bit of social work uh, and you would be, you know, like the perfect British old lady attending her church and doing some social charity or whatever. That, according to Jesus, is death. That is not peace. Jesus does not speak about that peace. And that is used by politicians, was used, and it became one of the key tenets of the manipulators. That means the manipulators started using this thing, like, first, I am screwing you big time, I am making some stupid rules which are demonic and ugly, and then... As soon as you start moving and getting agitated and saying, whoa, this is not what Jesus said, we can't have this. Then the rulers say, peace, 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 may peace be on earth. It's like peace when they screwed you, when it is the way they wanted, then let it be peace then war is not good at all. This is the kind of manipulator thing because the history shows something else. Not only that Krishna and uh, even the Prophet Muhammad, they go into this war-like feeling and they say when the truth is being threatened, one should stand up. Take it like this. Did Gandhi create peace? Yes, in a way he created peace because he promoted a non-violent, conscious, but nevertheless, Gandhi created a hell of a lot of conflict. Without Gandhi, things wouldn't have gone as intense as they have gone. It was Gandhi who whipped people's feelings up, and he said, this country must be free. That We cannot have 100,000 British running 300 million Hindus. We have a tradition. We have a past. We are a spiritual nation. There took a lot of whipping of the farmer's feelings to get them wired up to a level where they started saying well uh, yes actually this man is right yeah we can't continue like this because people many of them they live like sleeping animals if they if you give them food and quietness they would just stay and not come out and jesus is not giving this Jesus is provoking. Jesus is bringing something very provocative. That is why, remember, this is exactly like mixing up spirituality and prayer with charity and social service. Charity and social service is not at all the same with spirituality and others. Not to mention that today in this corrupted world of Kali Yuga, sometimes social service and charity can mean things which are exactly 180 degrees from what spirituality is supposed to be. But what I am trying to say is that the concept of spirit which Jesus brings, is a concept which is untamed, which is wild. Jesus is not at all a compromising person. He is not at all a politician. He is not trying to please anybody. He is not a crowd pleaser. He says the bare truth the way it is, and whoever can take it, can take it. Things are straight like this. And that is why, uh, in this way, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace on earth. And the following centuries have showed it. Even 1300 years after Jesus, people were still fighting, and are still fighting, religious wars in the name of Jesus. The Protestants, the Catholics, the God knows who, so many sects, so many splitting, so many things, they are just act- acting in the name of the same Jesus. Did Jesus bring peace? Did Jesus did not bring peace to the Romans and to the Greeks in the old times who were fighting with their own emperors and they were persecuted and crucified. This was hardly a peace. It was like whipping them off up to an incredible choice to give your life for Jesus. That's hardly peace. And yet, yes, Jesus brought them peace Jesus brought them the peace of samadhi, the peace of yoga. Yoga is peace, shanti, shanti, in the meaning that there is the peace of the soul, that the martyrs died in the throes of persecution, but they died in peace. They had reached the ultimate peace. That is why the ultimate peace, the peace of the soul has something, nothing to do with the social peace. Because if you live in a society which is ruled by demons and by the demonic forces, then a spiritual person can have no peace. Exactly like Gandhi, you would stand up and say, what can I do more to stir the shit up a little bit? I'm living in a world which is completely wrong. Therefore, somebody has to stand up and fight for something in this world. Somebody needs to stand up, and speak the truth. Even if that truth is politically incorrect, even if that truth is uncomfortable, somebody must stand up, and with the risk of creating a lot of turmoil, and discussions, and argumentation, and reactions, and maybe even people's discontentment, and violence, and so on, exactly as Jesus. Not everybody was content from what Jesus said and did. He did a lot of divine things, And yet the people around were not pleased with it. They are not content with it. And that is why Jesus brings peace in the meaning that the final result of prayer is peace. Nirvana is peace. Enlightenment is peace. Peace is considered to be the gift of the Holy Spirit. One of the great gifts of the Holy Spirit is peace. But that means the peace of heart. That whatever is happening, even in the middle of a turmoil, even in the middle of a tornado, even in the middle of a cyclone, I am at peace. It's internal peace. It's not external peace. Many people mix it up. Remember, this is the dirty trick of the politicians. In the last three, four hundred years, they build a world based on lies and deceit, on politics and manipulation, on materialism and all kind of demonic things, and then they tell you, Peace. Now, peace. It's kind of, you know, first we arrange it the way it wants to be, and then, peace. No, no. It's not what Jesus says. If Jesus would show up now in this world, he would thunder like a lion because this world is very, very far. ...from what Jesus had. At least in the time of the Jews when Jesus was speaking this... ...at least, yes, there were some hypocrites... ...and there were some manipulators and high priests and so on... ...but most of the people were God-fearing and they were religious. Things like those which happen today were not happening that much in those days. Compared with today, the day when Jesus was speaking to people... People were morally very candid, morally very innocent, morally very pure. Today we are living in a garbage can compared with what humanity was at the time of Jesus. And that is why we live in a society like this and the politicians tell you peace. Now if you want to stand up against your government, if you want to stand up against materialism, if you want to stand up, The government, they got it all. The manipulators, they have got it all. They separated the school from the religion. The religion is separated from the government. The religious is reduced to just a phantom institution which has no power. It's just a symbolic thing there and you have to pay 0.01% tax income every year to just sponsor religion. And if you don't want to go to your social center. And say I'm not a religious person. Cut me off the list. I don't want to sponsor this, the, the bleeding church. I don't want. And so on. And it's kind of what is religion today's become. It's a formality. It's a social institution for most people. And meanwhile. While the religion. It's not like in the time. When for example in Europe. Religion was strong. And the first kind of education which you get always would be religious. No. Now the education is forcefully materialistic, separated from everything and so on. And now if you disagree and want it the way Jesus had it, then the, then you become a peace uh, demonstrator. You become like the people who go and make anti-globalization manifestations. And then the government comes with policemen, with soldiers, with water cannons, with tear gas, and chases you away and says, why can't these people be at peace? We we finally have got a wonderful world out here and if everybody would be content, what a wonderful peace it is. It's like, who is the assholes? Well, uh, stupid jerks like the Arabs who want Allah and the Quran? you know. Those are the bad guys because they spoil the peace. The peace of the demons is not a peace. And any spiritual person would stand up against the peace of the demons. Remember that the peace of this world is very much today a materialistic, dark, demonic peace in which the demonic people have put the foot firmly on the situation and they say, okay... Okay, now the game stop. please. Nobody moves, nobody moves. Now it should be this way, it's good as it is. Peace. Now, nobody should stand up and do anything. Now, if you want negotiations, let's uh, negotiate. Because at negotiations... We politicians are the number one cheaters. We can postpone everybody for a hundred years and spin the words any way we want and nothing will be gotten. Remember that some spiritual people would stand up and would even take action. That action is what scares the demons of today and therefore they have plastered this fake thing uh, that Jesus comes and brings peace not this kind of peace. The Romans were having the concept of peace. The Roman peace, Pax Romana. That means the Romans first come, you have to bend over and they screw you from behind. And after you got it in your ass, then it's peace. Then the Romans want peace. That's the Roman peace. It means peace under the yoke of the Rome. Then sit quiet. That means then we don't want war, of course. Because that war means you want liberation and we can't have that. It's exactly the same today. We are not ruled by Rome. We are ruled by something similar which is transnational and which is nevertheless still dark and materialistic and evil. And in that way, this kind of peace is not what Jesus speaks about. Jesus in this way, he rather likes to provoke. Look what he did in the society of his time. Not only that he himself was a provoker, he made up followers, he made 12 apostles, send them, preach, provoke people. If they don't like you, shake the dust off your sandals, and go somewhere else, and that place will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, when it's time will come. It's kind of, Jesus is a peaceful guy, You must be joking. He is a firebrand preacher. He is a kind of man who stirs up everything. And if he doesn't like the status quo, if he doesn't like what's happening around, he is the first to roar like a lion. And therefore, remember, this mention is very clearly expressing because some people use this as a medicine for the crowds, as a hypnosis to the crowds, that we put you asleep Now stay, sleep, it's good, you have food, you have circus, you have entertainment, you have television, you have everything, just sit and be an obedient servant. It's like a hypnosis, peace, peace, peace. This peace is a fake peace, it's not the peace of the soul. Look in the western countries where you have everything, material prosperity, good social systems, tolerance and everything, like Take countries like the European Union countries and so on. Do they have peace? My God, I have been speaking, all of you come from there almost. And I have been living in such a country for eight years and so on. Are people at peace? No, people are tormented i have seen people in that environment talking in their sleep rolling moaning screaming having nightmares gnashing their teeth being on drugs suffering being depressed being where is the peace the actual peace is the peace of the heart that's the peace of jesus when you are like gandhi and you say even if they kill me They cannot take the paradise away from me because I have reached, I am doing the right thing. The peace is not this external peace where you sit like a sheep and allow the forces to be to just abuse you in all kind of ways. This peace, definitely think of Jesus. Think of how wild Jesus is. A man like Jesus would never accept the status quo when this status quo is wrong, when it is demonic, when it is dark, when it is materialistic. That is why he obviously speaks about a different piece and he makes it concrete and he quotes, He says, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and he concludes a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. I told you in a lecture before that Jesus often alludes to this, and you will see that at times, I don't remember if in Matthew's Gospel or the next, He's provoked about His mother, His sisters, His brothers, and Jesus is always very rude. He does not almost seem to recognize His own mother. Yes, the famous Virgin Mary, the super holy Virgin Mary, actually during the time of Jesus, Jesus is very much like this. Even on His cross, He doesn't call her mother. He says, woman, this is your son. It's kind of, he speaks in a way, and people says, your mother and brothers wait you outside. And he refuses to go outside, and he says, this is my mother and brothers. Everybody who is with me in this adventure, everybody who listens to the word of God, is my mother and brother and sisters. That means... As Many people have, and I already talked about this in a previous lecture, there is sometimes in spirituality the tendency to mix spirituality with a subtle egoism which comes from your love for family, clan, tribe, city, country, a kind of wolf pack. Egoism, that this is for our clan, this belongs only to our family, doesn't it? This is the secret of our family. Imagine if Christianity would have been like this, then a few egoistic families would have transmitted the secret Christian knowledge from father to son, just like the Chinese would do or whatever with martial arts and so on. Jesus, as well as Buddha and as well as the great spirits of the East, is completely adamant on this. This has nothing to do with family, quite the contrary. Experience shows, and I must admit I have verified this almost in a lifetime of yoga, experience shows that in spirituality your own family very seldom mocks along. Your own family is usually your biggest obstacle. Your own family are exactly your test, your stumbling stone, your, your trying place. Uh, Everybody understands you. Your family sabotages you. Everybody is with you. Your father, your mother, your sister, your whatever... They are the worst of them all. And because they are so close to you, they can actually get to you and harm you much more than some other Tom, Dick and Harry which are outside of you. That is why this is paradoxical. Jesus then comes much stronger on it and you are going to see how tough he becomes. But remember that in spirituality often... Sometimes the spirituality, the real spirituality cannot be transmitted in the family. That means even Ramana Maharishi, who was such a great yogi, did Ramana Maharishi actually convince his his own mother that he was a spiritual being even when he was old and his mother was very old and he was a great master and his mother was still treating him contemptuously. Did Ramakrishna convince his mother that he was holy? No. The mother of Ramakrishna thought that Ramakrishna was demented and crazy and at one point suggested to his relatives to take him to the red light district in Calcutta and give him a hooker because the boy needed to ejaculate to cool down. That's why he was so... so so crazy, so religious, so mystic, because he was full of cum and he just needed some release and then he would be a good boy again or whatever. The mother of Yogananda, Yogananda mentions, did you ever hear that the mother of Yogananda did any yoga or any practice or she joined him, although he was such a lovely man and such a lovely yogi, did you hear anything about the mother or the father of Aurobindo or of, no, for most of these people, the family may be mentioned But they are not there. Milarepa, his mother remained a bitch till the end of his life. Hateful and spiteful. And even after Milarepa had reached high things, he came back. His mother was already dead. She had been dying in misery. It's kind of... You never can really do it. If you look at the real spirituality, you will see that it almost never runs in a family. Like every rule... There is no absolute rule in mankind, and this one also has some exceptions. But those exceptions strengthen the rule. In 99% of the cases, spirituality has nothing to do with family, and actually quite the contrary. So any one of you has some crazy dream to convert your mom and dad and sister to yoga? I would say give it a try so you don't stay with the guilty feeling that you didn't try. And if it works quickly, it works. Like we have even here examples of people who are brothers, sisters, relatives or whatever. And they came together to spirituality. If it works, it works. And with the ones with which it doesn't work, it will never work. Remember, if people like Ramana Maharishi or Ramakrishna or Jesus could not convince their mothers or fathers or whoever that they were good enough, like Buddha, for example, and others, you name them, then who Will It's a utopia. Remember that the family symbolizes for most people the security on Muladhara and Svadhisthana. It's a very low chakra security. That's why we all the time in the low chakras dream of the family, of the nest, of the mother, the father, the things like this. And because of this, actually many yogis have actually asked that you should break loose from this, you should live your life heroically, freely, that you should live your, life, you should break loose from this warm, lukewarm nest where you have a fake feeling of security, because your family is just a fake feeling of security, and it appears that the karmic laws are such. That actually your family is put there to test you. It's like when a Milarepa incarnates, he is asked by his karma to incarnate in a place where his mother, father, sister, whoever, will be like challenges to him. The ridiculous thing is that people like Milarepa and like Ramana Maharishi and like Jesus they save their parents in the end by a process which is alchemic, mysterious. They reach to a point where their own parents can reach enlightenment in an almost artificial way by being swept into it without really knowing what the heck did I do to deserve this, to reach to this. It's like what did the mother of Ramakrishna do or the mother of Milarepa do or whatever to reach something spiritual. And yet it says that they reached, although while they lived, they were a pain in the neck. They were simply... People who are sabotaging poor Ramakrishna and Milarepa and whoever was there. That is why most tough spiritual practitioners, they usually choose to do their spirituality away ...from their family, they run into another country, they stay into some other environment, they know that the family is one of the most delusive places for practicing spirituality, and this lukewarm security of the family is one of the greatest tricks the nature pulls on you, because it gives you the the phony feeling that uh, you are secure and it is okay, no, this is something which is meant to dull your senses, And in that moment things are not going okay. Remember what Jesus says that when he says this, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Such a statement must be meditated. Again, I've seen examples. I know a family in which the father did yoga, he brought his son to yoga, he brought his second son to yoga, and even the wife started doing yoga after a while. So basically you have a family in which four people, or four of them do yoga. It's true, not all four equally intensely, because... Spirits are different. Some people are spiritually evolved and keen on evolution and some people are more in the beginning. But still, I have seen such examples and I have more examples, but they are like one in a hundred. The 99 out of a hundred are exactly the opposite, in which the family is more of a problem. I have encountered this phenomenon. I have seen it into my friends. I have seen it into those close to me. In the last 25 years, I have seen it all over the place. In 99 cases out of 100, the family is more like a test for the spiritual practitioner, rather than being any support or anything deep in the spiritual practice. But funny enough, One spiritual practice can backfire positively on the family, although, as you could say in a ridiculous way, in an egoistic way, although there are pains in the butt and they actually don't deserve it. It's like uh, the mother of Milarepa didn't really seem to do anything meritory and nevertheless she got the gift of spirituality through the efforts of Milarepa and uh, so on and so on and that is why i will not insist on this i hope i made the idea very clear that is why coming after peace after the story with the peace this story of jesus is also pretty disturbing remember therefore that spirituality is not a family business not at all quite the contrary and then he goes further and he becomes really rough he says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me, when he says me, then he here, he speaks like God already. That means he doesn't say me like, uh, Tom, Dick and Harry like a person. You don't even know how Jesus looked physically. We have only icons. So he doesn't say to love me as to love me as a person. He says to love me as to love me as an idea what I represent, the principle that I am. To love me, it means to be crazy for God. To love me means to love the idea of spirituality. And therefore he says whoever, anyone who loves their father or mother more than than me is not worthy of me anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me remember even Mahatma Gandhi he was spiritual fortunately his wife understood him because they are like partners like soul mates but his family not even the children of Mahatma Gandhi were completely estranged of him. Mahatma Gandhi had three children and only one came to attend the funeral of Mahatma Gandhi. The others were already moved in foreign countries and they all thought that Mahatma Gandhi is just an old fool. They were ashamed of their own father. Are you the son of the famous Mahatma Gandhi? Yeah, right, but don't mention it. It's kind of my dad is an idiot, a utopian idiot, Trying to preach non-violence in India. It's kind of, I am ashamed. My, my father is a freak, you know. I don't even want to hear about him. That's the ridiculous thing. For his family, Jesus was a freak. Buddha was a freak. Milarepa was a freak. They are dubious oddities, all these people. The family doesn't like them. And that is why, yes, Mahatma Gandhi actually he had to give away his children just like Shivananda did, abandon this. To go onto his mission from God. So Jesus is so right, although this is an ultimate form of detachment. This indeed is detachment. That means when you can break with this, then indeed you love God. It's kind of, you will never get it cheap. If it would be so very easy, everybody would be enlightened. You really need to look to go into this. Deeply, That is why perhaps it's a law of the universe which makes that indeed spirituality and uh, understanding should not be in your family so that you have to choose. Do I stay with my family and stay in Muladhara's Vadistana in my low soap bubble, in my low lukewarm security little pool? Or I open my wings and fly freely and boldly and roar like a lion and am an independent spirit. Therefore, this kind of thing is almost like a test. Is almost like God is a bit sadistically putting you first to love. Because you will get to love them, your mother and father, unless they are monstrous. You will get to love your mother and father. And then actually God is asking you to love God more than your mother and father. Give up like that young man, who earlier Jesus said, don't even stay to the funeral of your dead. Let the dead bury their dead. You come with me. It's kind of how much you have to love God to be able to quit the funeral of your own father and to go with this hippie that is called Jesus this kind of understanding is very rough and it shows the full aspiration only a man like Buddha who is ready to run in the jungle, only a man like Milarepa who is desperate to save his soul, only a man like Shivananda in the throes of a mystical crisis only a man like Yogananda who searches for God, only a woman like Laleshvari who is crazy and naked. Only a woman like Mananda Mai, who is possessed by the love of God, or a woman like Mirabai, who is possessed by her love for Krishna, will dare to live everything, mother, father, husband, child, everything, just to throw themselves into the ultimate love of God. Here, Jesus is kind of showing black and white. It's like I came to separate the weed from the wheat. It's kind of, are you with me or not? How far would you go? And therefore, this is indeed so tough. And anyone, so he said, son or daughter is not worthy of me. And now comes a real beautiful one. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I personally have a doubt if Jesus used actually the word cross. Because for himself... The cross was not something very familiar for the Jews in that time. And he himself had not been crucified yet. So the symbol had not appeared as such. So I have the suspicion that to take one's cross is a kind of a greek language later addition when the gospels were translated in greek or written in greek and it is like a kind of a later christian turning it's a manner of speech so to speak that is why you should interpret this with the cross to take what means to take your cross to what what did jesus do when he took his cross he sacrificed himself for the mankind therefore to take your cross means to do what Mahatma Gandhi did. You can say that Mahatma Gandhi took the cross on his shoulders and walked heroically for all his life. In the same way Jesus says, anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That means, you remember, nobody lights a candle, he said earlier, and puts it under a pot. When the light is on, it shines and people can see it. That means, when You want to give, you will give. You will give yourself to the mankind. You will give yourself to God. And that is why Jesus actually sees a life of spirituality as a life of sacrifice. He says, as I did. It's exactly like Krishna says, Arjuna, do not stay, act, look at me. He says, I have fulfilled everything that is to be fulfilled in the three worlds. And yet here I am with you. That means I, Krishna, immortal spirit and Avatara, I am sitting on a stupid battlefield with you in your chariot, getting wet from the rain and shivering from cold. And I shouldn't be here. I could be in Nirvana. I could be in paradise enjoying myself with the 70 virgins of Allah's paradise or whatever. And I am sitting here with you Doing hard work, enduring deprivation and the limitations of the physical body. This is a cross. You can say that Krishna says, I have taken my cross, I am carrying my cross, I am here... For the good of mankind. I am here for the well-being of this universe. It's compassion. That is why here Jesus is automatically describing a life of compassion. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That means a spiritual life is never passive. How do you take your cross? There were people who prayed 15 hours per day, like the great fathers of the desert, the great mystics, and they took their cross. It's a cross to take on your shoulders, to, to, to pray 15 hours per day, and to lead a holy life all the way through, to run the race of life all the way to its end, perfectly, so perfectly. It is a cross to take on your shoulder, to be martyrized, that's a short, intense one. It is a cross to be persecuted. It is a cross to take on your shoulders, to try to be moral, to set a good example, to do all kind of good spiritual things. That is why there are a lot of ways to take a cross, and this fits with the quote from Khalil Gibran. One day I am going to read that for you, because some of these things fit so well where Kahlil Gibran describes the nature of love, and he says love is going to make you blissed out, and it is also going to give you a lot of tears, and if you are not willing to taste the tears of it, you don't understand completely what love is. You have love, and you are in love, but you have not reached to the bottom and ultimate, because the real love, It contains in it sacrifice. It contains in it a form of sacrifice, which although painful, it is at the same time blissful and happy. So in this way, there are tears in love, as Jesus says, you should take your cross and follow me. It's a life of sacrifice. Your ego will hate every bit of it. You will have to step on your ego. When you love, when you love God, when you cultivate what Jesus says, humbleness and all those things, how many things you will have to give up? How much you will have to humble yourself? How many things you will have to give up? Your ego will be wounded and agonizing so many times. Therefore, it's not necessarily comfortable, but it does So much good to your soul in the end. That is why this idea is wonderful and it is at the same time expressed in such a radical way. Whoever does not, who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Therefore remember that Jesus sets this Ideal which is more than the contemplative one. It is action. It is karma yoga included in it. The spiritual life contains this as well. And he ends with a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful one. He says whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That means the fathers of the desert and people like this They were great losers, you know? Miserable little men and women who went into some stupid desert and they stayed and scratched their ear for 50 years. You know? What did they get out of it? They did not produce anything. They did not have children. They did not make family. They did not make business. They did not build statues. They did not make industry. They did not make scientific discoveries. They basically didn't do anything, apparently, for this mankind and yet they did so much because what they did keeps us alive today without their spirituality of Milarepa and of Saint Anthony the Great we wouldn't be here today the planetary karma would have got so heavy that we would be cataclysmically kaput today if that wouldn't have been the case and therefore People are trying not to lose their life. We are materialistic, utilitarian. But what am I doing with my life? But I am doing something. One of the main questions is that you do yoga and you do yoga and then it feels like your life is passing. Soon you are going to be old and you didn't do anything. What a glory it is in that. Because we are possessed by utilitarianism, by materialism, you know. It's kind of we have to be good for something. But what are we? A factory? What are we? Some racehorse to be exploited. We are not built to give productivity, to give efficiency. This is a capitalist, industrialist way of judging life. That if you lived through life and you didn't do anything, remember there were people From the standpoint of today, I have met so often this opinion, the manipuristic, industrialistic, uh, goal-oriented, gopher type of person. They always say, yeah... You're right. Monks and nuns. uh, What a bunch of losers, man. What a bunch of fiascos, you know. They just go and do nothing. Remember, there is a supreme beauty in doing nothing. Somebody is going to ask you, what will you make out of your life? And the answer is, I'm just going to waste it. I'm going to do nothing. Soon, I'm going to be dead. And that's the only thing which is sure in my life. Nothing I'm going to do. My life, is nothing. Jesus says, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And those who think they found it, they will lose it. That is the great truth. It's a fundamental. It's upside down. It's completely upside down from what the world believes. The world believes that if you build the Eiffel Tower and discovered penicillin or the theory of relativity, and if people remember you and you are in the history books, You will be something. The history books will be burned and the Eiffel Tower will be going into dust and even the pyramids will one day turn into rubble. And exactly as none of us remembers who built the Sphinx of Egypt and who did what in those days and all the books and the memories of those times are lost in the sand of time, Exactly in the same way, all this glory of civilization that Benjamin Franklin said and uh, George Fleming did and Albert Einstein did, they are shadows and dust. They are nothing. None of this survives. It's only Fata Morgana. This is Maya. The world is giving you the impression that all these things are relevant and they matter. But then you will find out with stupefaction that in the world, in the eyes of God, they don't matter at all. They are shadows and dust and nothing more than that. And that is why, remember, the way to find your life is to do what what Milarepa and Ramakrishna did. What was Ramakrishna? A loser, right? A young crazy boy doing Kali meditations, meeting with a guru, doing this, being flipped, everybody thinking he's crazy, being completely hysteric in his behavior, teaching a little bit here and there, and then getting a cancer and kicking the bucket. What's the big deal? A man like Jesus, he says, I don't even have a house to to lay my head down. I am a total vagabond. I am not of this world. And yet, He changed history. Remember, this comes in the spiritual life, I can tell it to you, as a man who has been for a number of years in the spiritual life. At some point, your utilitarian brain, which is a materialistic, egoistic thing, in which you think like an industrialist, is going to ask you this stupid question and torture you with it. What are you making with your life? You didn't do anything. Shouldn't you do something useful? No. People are not defined by what they do. People are defined by what they are. It's not activity which defines us. It's the existence. We are what we are. If I am a Buddha, I am a Buddha even if I don't do anything in my life. I don't need to do anything in my life or with my life. This is an illusion that somebody needs to do anything. This is a rajas. We are possessed by the spirit of activity. Let's do something because then we mean something. We think that we become meaningful if we do something. No. Even if you stay. That is why Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he makes it very clear, right? Will find it. Remember that this will come sooner or later. I have seen people who did some spirituality and because they are not deep enough in their hearts, because this is something from the heart indeed, then suddenly they said, well, I don't know really if I can reach Samadhi soon enough. This thing is procrastinating a little bit, so I think I'm going to do something useful. That is the biggest trap. Remember that there are people out there in the desert The fathers of the desert and other mystics who felt the same thing. They were going and spending five years in a hut in the desert. And then the devil came and whispered to their ear, shouldn't you do something with your life? Shouldn't you make yourself useful? And they started forth to do something. And then fortunately some old man, some old confessor with experience saw them and said, where are you going, brother? And then they said, uh, I'm having a project to do. And then the old man said, you know what? Get back into your cell, you know? Turn back right now. It's kind of, I can see the devil is whispering to your ear, to just, you've got a chili in your ass, and you are going out there to lose yourself in the matrix again, you know? Be clever. This is not important that you are, whoever loses his life, wins it that's the fundamental truth you have to be ready to screw this life completely to give it to god and to say you know what in this life i will be a complete loser i will not get anything i am ready to give everything i will not discover the insulin and i will not give the cure for aids and I will not discover the theory of relativity, and I will not even build an ashram or do anything. I am ready to be nothing, to be a vagabond. I am nothing, I come from nothing, I go into nothing. I am ready to give it all to God. This is coming from the heart. Only the heart can give you such a wisdom to understand this and to accept it. It's a humbleness. It's a kind of you have to cry for it, you have to shed tears for it, Because it hurts. I remember once I was talking with a girl who was very intense and powerful in her spiritual practice. And she said at some point I really got hot in my yoga. And at some point I got kicked out of my job because of some things. And, and then I suddenly found myself without a job, sitting at home. And I started practicing 8 hours of yoga every day, 10 hours of yoga every day. And she said, she told me, when I did that, I felt the most wonderful things. I was going so deep in my spirituality. But also, she said, because I was very Zvadhisthvanistic in that time still, like I was a bit too young for this, She said, I was crying one hour every day. Every day, besides my yoga practice, I felt that something in me was dying. I felt that all my foolish dreams, all my stupid hopes, all this Fata Morgana, all the stupid things that I had built that in my life I am going to do this and that, they were dying. And it was okay that they were dying. I felt happy, but at the same time it hurt. It felt like somebody was pulling... My teeth, somebody was pulling roots out of my heart and all those stupid dreams were going. And she said every day I had moments when I cried for my unfulfilled dreams which now I knew were never going to be fulfilled. They had just been silly dreams and now I was was waking up and I was realizing that all these silly dreams would never happen that now I have taken another path in my life and I was going to do something else. This is the beauty of it. Remember the heartfulness of it that whoever finds his life or thinks that he does so will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he addresses back to the disciples. He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives the one who has sent me there. The connection is clear. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth he will certainly not lose his reward. This is such a beautiful thing. It echoes Tibetan and Indian teachings. The Tibetan teachings say, whoever, if you believe that your teacher is an enlightened being, you will receive the blessings of an enlightened being. If you believe that your teacher is an extraordinary person, you receive the the blessing coming from an extraordinary person. And if you believe that your your teacher is just a common person, there will be almost no blessing. Therefore, it is your faith who does, and he says exactly as the way receive you. Because now I'm not sending you neither as righteous people, not as prophet. I'm sending you in my name. And I'm coming directly in the name of God. So whoever receives you like this. When I'm putting such a pressure. That means this is a really difficult to swallow. And yes, I know I'm forcing people to make a brutal choice. With or against. You know, decide. Whoever comes whoever accepts you like this his reward will be great the story with a glass of water is so beautiful if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple i tell you the truth he will certainly not lose his reward that's one of the common beliefs in india in the old vedic and puranic text they said it's good to give water to a great yogi like to beggars to all these sadhus who come around because some of them are great great spirits And if they give you a blessing, maybe in your next life you'll be born in a yogic family and you'll learn spirituality and your karma will be cleansed away and you can reach spirituality in no time. They believed that sometimes the benevolent look of such a great yogi, some of them indeed in India and Tibet, They were very modest yogis, some of them colossal. We don't even know their names. They never preached or showed to anybody what they were and some of them were spiritual giants, people who had reached the open eyes, Samadhi and things like this and who were living a completely parallel life because they thought that it was not their mission to interfere with people. You give a glass of water when it's hot outside and the people are thirsty. You give a glass of cold water to one like this, He may look at you with compassion and gratitude like I am a giant and you are a small ant. And yet you as a small ant, you give me a glass of water out of the little which you have. I am so grateful that out of the little which you have, you could give me a glass of water that now let me show you what I can give you from the much which I have discovered. And I can look at you with compassion, and in a second the karma of a hundred lives will be wiped out just like this, and then you will be ready for something wonderful and spiritual. This idea that you should give a glass of water to a thirsting yogi, because maybe he is a Buddha and you don't know that yet, is an idea which is typically Indian, and therefore here Jesus in these two sentences, he actually rejoins a tradition which is Indian and Tibetan with these things, and the meaning of it is very clear. The laws of karma, the laws of the universe are so much vaster, that actually sometimes the consequences can be surprising. And I will continue a little bit. Then... The story continues. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. It actually says in their towns there. So this was actually, if you remember, the winter season when everybody was kind of take, keeping a more low profile. When John heard in prison of what Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, He sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? That means even John, although he recognized him as being greater than him, and when the baptism of Jesus comes, he says, It is I who should have baptism from you. That means John freely admits, This man is more spiritual than I am. He can feel it. It's the feeling of such a very lucid, spiritually lucid man. Nevertheless, this is like too big. It's like this man is skyrocketing and suddenly he hits the jackpot. He is the Messiah. He is the awaited one. He is the ultimate one. He is the one that can have no no greater one than him. And even John needs the man to tell him. That means I have seen you are great. I have seen that you are greater than me. And yet, I need this reassurance he is still a man he still can have his doubts he doesn't see it absolutely he is not at the level of Jesus to be able to see with the clarity of Jesus and Jesus replied go back and report to John what you hear and see the blind receive sight the lame walk those who have leprosy or skin disease it's used are cured the deaf hear The dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is the danger of it. That means I am coming with a burning fire. And this fire is so intense that it is very difficult for people to swallow it. I am giving such a big mouthful to people. Maybe if I would take them more easily maybe they would accept but like this to come and say this man is the messiah the son of god the ultimate the avatar of the avatars it's kind of wow you know it's kind of it, does it happen right now and here oh my god you know it's kind of it obliges you to think big it's it's a, it's a very big challenge to the mind of somebody to accept wow this is happening right here And now, right in front of me, right like this. And that is why it's a challenge. And therefore, Jesus realizes that some people may fall away because of the challenge that he gives them, because it's a sudden choice. And he says, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you... What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written in one of the prophets of the old days, Malachi or whatever, who says, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus immediately found the position of John in this prophecy and he actually says that John is a prophet and A lot of a prophet, a big one, a special one. So Jesus in this way, exception made of Virgin Mary, who is privileged with her own position, Jesus describes John the Baptist as being the kind of the third most important. He puts John the Baptist in his own little universe there in a very privileged position, like on top of the ladder. And he tells it so very clearly in the next paragraph. He says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, remember, he was not born of women. He was born of woman, but through the Holy Spirit. So uh, those born of women means Tom, Dick, and Harry, the regular human beings. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So with this, Jesus is making a colossal statement, which puts John the Baptist on such a privileged position. The relics of John the Baptist in Christianity, they have always been accounted with a magical power, more than any other. I remember when somebody told me a story from Mount Athos about one of the miracles from there when there was generally the Ottomans, the Turks, the Muslims, they let Mount Athos alone because it was such a holy place and they were a bit afraid of the miracles and so on. But a couple of times they went in and they tried to do something. And at some point there was an invasion on Mount Athos and they were invading the monastery where there were the relics of John the Baptist and those guys they as usually try to chase after stones and rubies and gold and whatever to desecrate the church to steal everything valuable and while they are ripping the church off suddenly one of them screamed and showed them and then they all got horrified in that church they had the head of John the Baptist on a silver plate you know the John the Baptist was beheaded and his head is in a monastery in Mount Athos and it is put on a silver tray. It is kept like this. And the legend of that day says that the head of John the Baptist had opened its eyes and was looking at them straight. And when these guys saw the head of John the Baptist with the eyes open, they simply scrammed in panic, they screamed in panic and dropped everything and ran like chased by ghosts or whatever. They were so afraid. That is why I'm telling you that many stories are related, and John the Baptist has a very privileged function, and he represents something very special which Jesus will not hesitate actually to say. Yet, he says, and so he proclaimed it big, but he says, yet. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That is an amazing statement. He says the kingdom of heaven starts from the level of John the Baptist and higher. That means here he presents the kingdom of heaven not just as a simple salvation, but he presents the kingdom of heaven as a complete spiritual awakening, as the complete realization. As you can see, at least at this point, John the Baptist was obviously not fully enlightened like bhava, samadhi, enlightenment or whatever, because he was unable to see Jesus fully and to say, well, are you the man? He asked, tell me, give me courage, give me faith. Are you that man that we are waiting for? And Jesus said, look at the facts. The tree is known by the deeds. The lame are walking. The blind are seeing. The gospel is preached to the poor. Don't you see? Don't you see that it's happening right here in front of you? And therefore, he gives him the answer. But he's aware. John the Baptist is still having his doubts. But nevertheless, among those born of women, he is the greatest. Remember that later, Jesus describes a second birth. He says, what is born of the flesh is flesh, and then there comes what is born of the Spirit. To be born of the Spirit means actually to be enlightened, to be at oneness with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you don't know, but the history of the early Christian church shows with incredible accuracy that many people in those days in the moment when they got baptized, they got a state of Samadhi also. They got enlightened. When they got baptized, they actually got the Holy Spirit and they got such a mystical state. So for many people, baptism was almost like their first state of Samadhi, like enlightenment. And therefore, I'm telling you all these so you understand that Jesus says, those born of women, and then He will bring a gift which is the birth out of spirit, the spiritual birth which he offers to mankind. And therefore, uh, I'm telling you this, because he comes with the standard of the kingdom of heaven, with the Holy Spirit of being touched by immortality in this way. And he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. This deserves to be read... in the other interpretation... because here the language is a little bit... Uh, modified from the traditional one. I will give you the alternative reading... from the old version. He says... And from the days of John the Baptist... until now... the kingdom of heaven suffered violence... and the violent take it by force. This, this message here translated with violence, is actually a very interesting one, because basically here Jesus describes that we have the mercy of God, but he actually describes the effort. He says, forceful man lay hold of it. That means, who would be this forceful man? Well, he himself... Buddha meditating 12 years in the forest. Milarepa meditating for 30 years. The kingdom of heaven shall be taken by force. In the meaning it's like you assault a city. The Kashmir Shaivists say it's like you lay siege to a city. It's the city of God and you want to break the gates and go in. That means God Is testing you if you really want to get in. And if you don't show your eagerness, you will not get in. It's like a, it's like a game. Break the doors. You want to come to me? I am inside the gates. Break the gates. How do you break the gates? With your Kundalini. The ram that breaks the gates is your Kundalini. That's the effort. The effort which like Hatha Yoga or things like this, this is the kingdom of heaven is taken, says that by violence, by effort it is taken. That means here Jesus says immediately what it is because he says things about John the Baptist and yet he says the kingdom of heaven is even a greater thing and from the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven has been like this and uh, forceful, they forcefully have approached it. That means he is very, very clear about this issue that without doing efforts, remember all the great saints, men and women, they prayed hours, they did whatever they did, they did their own spiritual efforts. You need to break through the gates. If not, you will not get the kingdom of heaven. And he says, (coughs) For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And then he says the quote which is the ultimate argument in favor of Gnostic reincarnation. He says, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. That means here, it's clearly that he speaks, because he even says in the end, attention, this is a thing. He says here, who has ears, he who has ears, let him hear, because here is something very deep. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come, because the prophet Elijah has prophesied that he will come again, that he will rise from the dead and come again. And Jesus simply says, John the Baptist is Elijah. That means he simply doesn't make any comment about this. So basically he says, this is Elijah that was to come. People could not recognize, but I am telling you that that is the truth. As a result of this, in the book of Revelation of John, when the future of this planet is predicted, and the second coming of Jesus is predicted, again, the same pattern is happening. When you read the book of Revelation, maybe we get to read it together in this, we get exactly to the same pattern, that first there comes Elijah, and then after Elijah jesus comes the second time it's the same pattern that is why john the baptist is called the forerunner the one who comes ahead the one who comes before he is like the one that announces the coming of the real big one which comes after and says john in his revelation that he saw in the future that when jesus will come he will send elijah the third time elijah alias Elias John the Baptist will come again once more as announcing the coming of Jesus. That is why in the book of Revelation you find that pattern. Here this statement is very clear. Unfortunately the church doesn't like this statement and says you are all a bunch of ignorance. You don't understand. It doesn't mean that. If you ask them but what does it mean actually? They say well... uh, you know, this is wisdom, you don't have it, we don't have it, they will just babble it, and they will say that maybe Jesus spoke metaphorically, and actually not literally or whatever, although the statement, the text of the Bible is pretty clear in whichever version you take, listen how that sounds in the New King James Version, it's 14 here, In the old language it sounds as clear as that. And if you will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. That means the statement is undoubtedly clear. And this is one of the arguments by which if people say, well, if the prophet Elijah came back, then of course there is reincarnation. It's something which actually the Kabbalistic Jewish mysticism was considering natural. In the text, in the Hebrew times of that day, the idea of reincarnation is mentioned very clearly. That is why Jesus being from that environment He couldn't have strayed away from that environment and suddenly did something else. Therefore, it's funny that although in the old Judaism, in the traditional Kabbalah, this thing is there, nevertheless, the church through its saints has chosen this path of uh, denying the reality of reincarnation for some purposes which maybe were good in intention, maybe the original intention was good, But nevertheless, here is one of the statements of Jesus which tells something about this very clearly. And he concludes, it will probably be one of the last things that we'll read. He says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang, we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, that was him, came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions in this way jesus simply says that the present generation does not recognize that generation could not understand who john is they all the time say we played the flute you did not dance we sang this and you did not do it's like they expect the spiritual beings to be the way they are to play their game to play ball Their way. And therefore, eh, they do not wish to accept. And therefore, when John came and he was very ascetic and living in the desert, then they said, this guy is crazy. He is demonized. When Jesus came and he was completely bhava samadhi type, eating and drinking with everybody, they said, this guy is a glutton and he lives with the sinners and the tax collectors and whatever. And then he simply says, wisdom is proved. Right? By her actions. That means the tree is known by the fruits. It is as simple as that. They can say whatever they say, but obviously they did not see the truth. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Now he did what he did. The disciples were there, but then things did not happen. Like not as much as he expected, and he says, "Woe to you, Korazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that what that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." In this way, you can actually see what he aims. He expected people. To repent in sackcloth and ashes, he says they would have done it. You haven't done it. In this way, Jesus is bringing here first of all a streak of repentance, and he's quite tough actually because he kind of wants them all in sackcloth and ashes, like quite ascetic. You can hear, see here, a quite tough streak of practice. But I tell you. It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, which were sinful cities for them at that day, because they were no not Jewish anymore. They have been corrupted with the others, and the Jews have been carried there, and so on. They would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. He talks to those cities. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies, No, you will go down to the depths. Actually, the word which is used in Greek here is Hades. You will go down to the Hades, to the inferno, to the underworld. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. That means the people of Sodom, should they have seen such thing, they would have repented because they had more heart. But unfortunately, such signs were not given to them and therefore... They went down. But I tell you, he says, that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. He becomes very tough. As you can see, he's having this thing. Separate the black from the white. That means I'm bringing you this word and it's time to pass your test. It's examination day. Finally, you are confronted with the exam of your existences. And the last paragraphs of this chapter, I'll read them so we can conclude with them. He says, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. This is an amazing statement in its own Because it shows that the kingdom of heaven and the things of spirituality, ultimately they don't belong to scholarship. Both in their time where they had a lot of these Pharisees and scholars and learned people and scribes, as well as in India and other places, there have been pandits and scholars and people splitting the hair and analyzing things and not being able to do the simple things which children did. That is why Jesus says sometimes you can see the understanding of this more in children. The way the children are, spontaneous, clean, pure, candid, asking questions without any fear, loving without any inhibition, giving a hug when they feel like giving a hug, and yes, in their simplicity, sometimes seeing the most incredible truths, just like this. In the same way, Jesus is saying those people, those children are more close to the truth of God than the learned and the scholars who fill up their minds with a lot of things, but they lack this spontaneity of practice. In this way, Jesus is talking about a subconscious mind which should be more pure it's more like children not building so many engrams not building so many patterns in your mind through education family society and all the others but on the contrary by meditation and others washing them and being more like a child it's not losing your lucidity or your intelligence it's just losing all these patterns that condition us There is. We could make a long comment on how the consciousness of a child is in a certain way more close to the divine consciousness. Because a child is not having much of the conscious mind. A child is very much subconscious. That is why our conscious mind is not developed by the time we learn to speak, and that is around the age of two. And that is why normal human beings, they can't even remember anything before the age of two. Because before the age of two, because you did not speak, you did not have a conscious mind. It is speech which is bringing aware consciousness. Speech is the vehicle of consciousness. You remember we said that in yoga. And therefore the child at the age of two, together with speaking words, starts having memory. But without that, the child when he is one year old, He just have a subconscious mind. Therefore, the child is directly on the subconscious mind. The child is like hypnotized. The child is so receptive. That's why hypnotizers have noticed that sometimes it's very easy to hypnotize children because sometimes children are like already hypnotized. They don't have a conscious mind. They don 't have a censorship, and this censorship, which is put by the conscious mind, uh, no, 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 you cannot do this, you cannot do that, it's like you are far from the depths of your mind. Remember that your subconscious mind is the one which you remember from lesson number 25. It is the one which goes to the etheric body, astral body, mental body, causal body. The subconscious mind is actually the one which constitutes the deeper bodies. Therefore, in a child... His deeper bodies shine very clearly. You can see the personality of a child and his samskaras. Many people are worried. They say, my little baby is one year and a half old and he's already a monstrous tyrant. He's manipulating everybody in the family. He's egoistic. He's like, It's kind of, you say immediately what kind of spirit is, because that child is shining through. That's how his samskaras are. That's how his subconscious mind is. He is shining directly from his previous lives and from his samskaras. That's how he is. Then when he gets a conscious mind, then there comes the thing of this life, which starts covering the gap, and then you start seeing a mask after a few years, built out of the the child learned in this life. That is why Jesus says the children being in this subconscious state already, they are in a certain way closer. That is not completely true, because Jesus doesn't actually say, let's give enlightenment to children. He still says you have to be grown up, but you have to be like a child. The children have that But unfortunately, they haven't gone through the valley of tears. They haven't been tested. You need to attach a conscious mind to that and then to lose it again. That's the name of the game. And that is why the child is like that, but he is not completely like that. In a certain way, I think in Buddhist lore they say rocks and minerals and atoms and crystals, they have such a pure, simplified consciousness, which is very much like nirvana. Nirvana is like the consciousness of a rock, the consciousness of a crystal. While the animals and the human beings especially, they are so full of instincts, emotions, desires, a rock has no desires, it has no fear, a rock is stable for a million years and therefore it's like in a long long meditation what's the difference between a rock and a buddha the buddha has been through the shit for a while the buddha has acquired the ego and then learned to deal with it and to bring it there that's why the rock is like a man in nirvana but still it is not in nirvana. It represents actually a very early stage of development. In the same way, a child is a very special thing because it's pure, but still it is an early stage of development. He will need to go nevertheless through the whole kaboodle and to get out at the other end as pure as a child, but after going through the pond, after swimming through the lake and crossing it, and getting to the other shore. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him that is an amazing statement which you have to understand metaphysically the first part is like nobody knows the son exception made of the father this you can understand metaphysically easily by saying that you see even john the baptist could not really see what Jesus was because Jesus was higher than him and nobody who is lower can understand something which is higher. That's why what is higher than Jesus? Just the Father in heaven and that's why only the Father can see the Son, can understand the Son. But the second statement is purely metaphysic. Because it says, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. To understand this, you need to go into the ultimate metaphysics of Christianity as they are given by the Gnostics and others when they describe what is the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The divinity according to Christianity and not only is the triadic divinity we have the father and then we have the two aspects which come lower these two aspects which come lower the father i'm sorry the son and the holy spirit they are presented usually of course it's a beloved image because of the symbol of trinity they are presented as a triangle the father the son and the holy spirit right and This image of the triadic, of the triadic structure of God, which places the Father above everything, automatically it involves one clarification. This is the classic clarification or classification, which was done later also in Kabbalah. The Kabbalists have taken this staunchly, and they divide the reality of God as a triadic reality, uh, by defining God under the formula, I'm sorry, I will not say it well in Hebrew, so the Israelis will jump up, Ein Sof Aur, or Or, Ein Sof meaning infinite, and aur meaning light. And sof aur, infinite light. But which is made of the three formulas. Ain, sof, and aur. And therefore, aur or light is one thing. Sof is the other thing. And Ain, which simply means no. Which is exactly like neti neti from Vedanta. It's like the void of Buddha. That would mean, that would be the supreme. And now comes the thing. This... Ein Sof, infinite, and this Aur, the light, they are like two opposites to each other. Here the Kabbalistic tradition fits completely with the Gnostic tradition. That means Ein Sof is the masculine aspect of God and it is nothing else but Purusha or the Shiva aspect and Aur or the Holy Spirit is nothing else but the Shakti aspect the Paramashakti aspect. And therefore, the Gnostics, they always said that the Holy Spirit is female. It's the feminine part of God. God has no sex, is beyond any duality. And then it divides first in Shiva and Shakti. The Purusha, And the Prakriti, the masculine and the feminine. And therefore, God is defined as being God, the transcendent, the Tao, which is beyond yin and yang. And then the two aspects, the first polarization, the mother and father principles, the son and the Holy Spirit the sun the Shiva aspect the masculine aspect the Purusha and the Shakti the Holy Spirit the Shakti the Holy Spirit is actually presented as the breath of God as the power of God as the energy of God that's why that is ultimately Shakti the Christian religion among some other things such as cutting out reincarnation ideas and so on funny enough it has cut out this thing suddenly There is no feminine power. The God of Christianity doesn't have anything feminine, which is quite weird. It sounds like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit should all be either without any sex, while Jesus being the Son definitely must be masculine, but at the same time, they seem to be, all of them, masculine. Where is the feminine aspect? Then, because of that, they would go to things like saying, okay, uh, then... um, Oh, let's put Virgin Mary. We have something feminine in Christianity. And that's Virgin Mary. And Virgin Mary is transfigured. Exactly as in Tantra. I have met poems of transfiguration of Virgin Mary. Like prayers. They really sounded like prayers to Tara in Tibetan Buddhism or in Hinduism and so on. Virgin Mary was called the star of heaven and she received some epithets. They were identical with epithets given to Tara in by Tibetans and in the northern part of India. And therefore Virgin Mary has undergone a process of transfiguration by which she was projected sky high and as big as the heavens like this is the Shakti of Christianity, the Virgin Mary. But this was simply because the story about the Holy Spirit was kind of lost in the process, and then nobody had the boldness to put it back. In Gnosticism, for example, even today, the Copts of Egypt, the Coptic Church of Egypt, they consider that the Holy Spirit is Sophia, the Sophia of God, the wisdom of God, and it is feminine. Therefore, uh, this structure of God, with God the one, and then the Shiva Shakti, is actually the accurate structure according to the Gnostic, according to the esoteric Christianity. And that is why now you can get the explanation. When Jesus says something like this and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him what is the son the son is purusha the son is atman the son is the shiva nature of each and every person nobody can reach god exception made by understanding the son which means the shiva nature the purusha the atman then it becomes clear Because you cannot reach the ultimate without first going through the Shiva aspect. And that is why in this way Jesus here speaks about himself as about being the cosmic principle. He doesn't say nobody on this earth will not reach enlightenment if they don't know about me. Because think, there have been Zen masters to Japan and enlightened beings to India such as the great Mahasiddhas and others who perhaps physically never heard about Jesus. There have been people who were born before Jesus, like Patanjali and others. They never heard about Jesus, obviously, at least physically how should they have reached enlightenment? It means enlightenment was reserved only to some people living on a hundred square kilometers around where the place Jesus was because those were the people who could hear about him in those days when there was no television, media, books, communication, whatever. And therefore, you have to think about this cosmically. Jesus here talks about himself as the cosmic principle. Nobody can understand, know the Father except the sun and those to whom the sun chooses to reveal him. That's the mystery of the mysterious unknown. Shiva Purusha, the unexplainable, the Atman, the transcendent nature of God, the Shiva aspect, which reveals itself to whomever it wishes, which gives enlightenment and clarifies existence to whomever it wishes. It's kind of there that you have the manifestation of the will of God, in its transcendent aspect. And the last paragraph, which after which we'll stop, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That means I once had a text written by one of my early teachers. He said in his meditation, he said, I will take the yoke of God, I will take the yoke of Jesus because the world is promises a lot and gives you nothing. And for that little thing which the world promises to you and doesn't even give it to you, it makes you pay tears of blood. That means the world, the Fata Morgana, the Maya is attracting you with a lot of things and you have to put a lot of effort and in the end you bite the dust and you get nothing. It's heavy work to do that. Jesus says, come to me those of you who are tired, who are exhausted. He uses in this translation the word those who are weary and burdened. Yes, some of us at some point we become weary and burdened. This world is too much. This matrix is simply too much. And Jesus says, come because I will give you rest. Rest means nirvana. Rest means void. Rest means the peace, the real peace, the peace of the soul. Therefore, we all suffer from agitation, from desires, from this, and we get weary. And then Jesus says, He even uses the word yoke. Many people in commenting modern yoga, they have seen the word yoke as the equivalent of yoga because yoga means to put together, to yoke, like you are yoking two oxen to a chariot. So it's a form of yoke. Yoga is a yoke, the yoke of yoga, the yoke of Jesus. Take the yoke of spirituality. And he actually says there can be other yokes, And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That means there can be, you can take the yoke of a Zen master. He will keep you five days without food at the entrance of the temple. Then he will beat you up two times per day. He will treat you like a dog for the next ten years. He will kill your ego systematically. He will treat you like shit. That's a heavy yoke. Why shouldn't you take the yoke of Jesus? Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in my heart. I am forgiving. I am ready to forgive and to do a lot of things. I am one of the gentle ones. For me, God is forgiveness. God is repentance. Therefore, I am proposing to you, not even something so difficult, I am proposing to you a gentle path, a path of the heart, a path of the forgiveness, Take my yoke, all those of you who are tired, take this. And he ends by saying, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That means he is offering automatically a yoga that is light and easy. He says, my discipline is not so difficult. After all, how much did Jesus ask from people? His disciples, his apostles What did he ask them to do? Did he ask them to stand on one toe for 12 years? Or did he ask them to do incredible things a la Milarepa? No, he didn't ask almost anything. He just asked them common sense and he asked them love of God and he asked them surrender and he asked them all the beautiful things which he taught them and which you have heard. Therefore, Jesus says, what do you want more easy than that? It means he says, I am humble, I am gentle. I am not the one who is going to whip you like Milarepa got whipped by his master for getting the secrets of meditation and initiation and whatever. He says, I am going, I am having a light yoke. Therefore, this here you can see indeed the nature of Jesus. Jesus is so conscious of himself and he says, I am coming here with love, with forgiveness. I am coming to take you a yoke. And he addresses Obviously to each and every soul. he Again his call is so shattering. When he says come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. This is what we are all searching for. We are searching for rest. We are searching for the Purusha. We are searching for the great void. We are searching for Nirvana. We are searching for the eternal rest. A rest which is a rest in spirit. And Jesus says. I will give you rest. That is the peace. That is the peace of Jesus. Not the social peace in the name of demonic things, as I said. And in this way, this is a wonderful saying in this way in which Jesus proclaims his quality as a guru. He says, nobody will reach to God by through understanding this condition of the son of the Purusha. As we say, And therefore, he basically calls the world, he says, come to me. This cry addresses to each and every one of you, Jesus says, come to me, because my yoke is easy. I will read for you one day, when I will read some additions to it, I will read this paragraph, uh, which I have got from one of my early teachers in spirituality, so easy, so, so beautiful, he writes... He's a man who has meditated a lifetime on these things. And he says, it's so much sweet, the yoke of Jesus. So much sweet is the yoke of God, because it always gives what it has promised, and it fulfills you. While life is such a treacherous thing, it gives you this fata morgana of I want this, I want this, I want that. And in the end you don't even get them. It's all soap bubbles and illusions. And you have to work all your life. And you have to sell your soul. And you have to bleed for it. And it makes everything so dearly paid. And in the end you don't even get the full thing of it. And you bite the dust in the end. And you are encountered with disappointment and all the others. That is why it is so much more beautiful to take the yoke of Jesus. The price of it is that you have to take your cross and walk. The price of it is that you have to accept to lose your life, thus gaining it. Everybody who will lose his life for my sake, will find it. And those who think they found it, they lost it. To find your life, you don't need to build the Eiffel Tower. You need to lose it for the sake of God. It appears for the others as being a lost life, but actually it is the ultimate Gain. It is the ultimate fine. Therefore, Jesus here presents himself with this saying as world guru, as the guru of all, and he says, I can give peace and rest to all those who feel burdened, who feel weary. I will not say more. We have stopped at the end of paragraph number 11. Next time when we'll speak, next Thursday that is probably, we'll talk about the paragraph number 12 from the Gospel of Matthew. I will stop here. I will take your possible talks, questions, issues which are there, after which we'll part for tonight because it's already late. Kingdom heaven, it the Kingdom of Heaven belongs to all this triad. That means everything in this triad can be considered the kingdom of heaven. It is the Holy Spirit which takes you to the kingdom of heaven, which gives you the kingdom of heaven, and therefore, of course, the Son is in the kingdom of heaven. So everything at this level belongs to the divine, and it is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven corresponds to this triadic nature of God. I'm sorry again. What do the Christians mean when they say you have the gift of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the active essence of Christianity. A great Russian saint called Seraphim of Sarov, he even defined it like this. He was asked, "What is the essence of a Christian life? The way you see it?" And this man says, "says the answered, the, and the essence of the Christian life." is to get hold of the Holy Spirit... and accumulate it in great amounts in your being. To receive the gift of it... through prayer and through a virtuous life... and to accumulate it. Basically, he speaks about the Holy Spirit... exactly as he speaks... as as a yogi would speak about energy... about the universal energy. He uses terms which fit exactly... exactly. He speaks about that somehow... through your virtue through your prayer, you accumulate the Holy Spirit, which is kind of incredible. The Holy Spirit can be accumulated. Yes, it fell upon the disciples of Jesus, upon the apostles, apostles, and they got it in the 50th day, which was three days ago, Monday, when we had the Pentecost. And uh, they got it in that day, and it was like flames of fire dancing above the heads of the apostles which is so very significant fire which is a symbol for kundalini fire which is a symbol for awakening and enlightenment and uh, fire above the top of the head that is uh, such a very beautiful symbol for showing for talking to us about enlightenment so in that way in that way uh, this holy spirit is indeed like an energy is like the breath of god when they describe the holy spirit the prophets from the old testament and the same thing was about the apostles and the others they describe it that it comes with a gust of wind that actually even the weather changes today Every year in the big church of the tomb of Jesus in Israel, there is a ceremony of the Holy Fire where the light of resurrection is supposed to come miraculously directly from heaven. And people who describe that, who analyze all the circumstances, they say you cannot see it when you are in the church. But they say if you would be outside and study, always when this phenomenon is happening, first, you get a wind blowing. In the most stable day, where there is no wind, suddenly the wind blows, and usually a couple of clouds show on the sky. So there is a cloud of a certain shape on the sky, and the wind blows. This wind is is considered to be, like the Holy Spirit is the breath of God, and so on. And uh, it's uh, very funny, that Saint Seraphim of Sarov, he healed somebody, And then that somebody who was a officer of the army who had some physical inability, he was healed by Saint Seraphim of Sarov. And then at later time, Seraphim of Sarov loved him so much and he considered that many monks are hypocrites. He didn't really like the monks and the monasteries because those people were doing formal religion uh, kind of... uh, Uh, theatrical religion, not the real thing. So Seraphim of Sarov actually liked his convert, his disciple, who was an ex-army man. He liked him more than the monks. He said his devotion is more sincere than the devotion of all those monks from the monastery who just sit there and eat and drink and they practice a formal religion. And one day, he gave a state of samadhi to this man who was an ex-military because this man asked him, about this with the Holy Spirit. And he said, how does one accumulate Holy Spirit? How does it feel? And then Saint Seraphim of Sarov, he said, I will show you. And in the next moment, this man said, this was in Russia, somewhere high in the north. And he said, it was cold and it was snowing. They are out in the forest. They are talking in the forest in the snow. And he said, I was out in the forest and it was snowing. And suddenly everything became warm around me. I didn't feel the cold anymore. And everything started shining with a golden light. And he said, when I looked at the face and at the eyes of Seraphim, he was shining like the sun with a dazzling white light, which blinded me and made me afraid. And his face was shining like the sun. And everything around me became golden, shining with gold. And I looked at my body and it was made of golden light. And I looked at the trees and at the snow which was falling. And it was all golden. And I was like in a soap bubble where everything was made of gold completely. Everything was shining with a golden light. And then Seraphim came close to him. And then he said his face started shining with such an intensity. That I got afraid and I asked him to stop it. Because it was too much I was seeing too much and I was not prepared for it. This manifestation of golden light, that's what Kabbalah says, the infinite light, which is described by Kabbalists as being golden in color. The light of God being like the shine, like the sun, like the liquid light of the sun, golden and amazing. And this is exactly the Holy Spirit described as light, as a shining light, which is a mixture of something shining white and dazzling, and at the same time, golden, mild, and warming, and everything. This kind of thing shows immediately that the Holy Spirit is the carrier. It is the one that takes one to there. When the apostles were enlightened, the apostles of Jesus were not enlightened during the life of Jesus. When Jesus died, they were ignorant still they were in the throes of doubt and jesus told them as you'll see he said don't move from jerusalem because i'm going to send you the holy spirit and 50 days after zang which is such a very significant because 49 days is exactly the bardo cycle it is the cycle mentioned by tibetan and indian yoga when jesus finished his bardo cycle The Holy Spirit came and it hit them without any warning and they were completely gone into ecstasy. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is Shakti. It is the goddess. It is the power and it is the one which like Kundalini takes you to enlightenment. It is the active force of God. That is why you can say that Shiva is passive and it's consciousness, Purusha, but the what? what you do in practice all this kundalini all these chakras all these energies that shakti which in its in her pure ultimate form is nothing else but what the christians call the holy spirit of god this is the explanation of the way you work with it and seraphim of sarov says through your prayer you accumulate holy spirit you basically accumulate Shakti. This is how he describes it, and it's such a wonderful, such a clear technical presentation of what prayer is, of what the development is. You said that the family is uh, often can be an obstacle. What about the environment, the nation you're born in the environment? You have to be detached from that because sometimes your family, your clan, your city, your tribe, depends from what kind of society you come from. And yes, your country can be a problem. It can be an obstacle. You want to do yoga, but your country is asking you to kill people. You know, like be a good soldier of your country. You kill people, that's not really what Jesus would want you to do. That's not what Milarepa would see you like doing. And therefore, it is better to get detached of that as well. Sometimes, even the country is a form of attachment. There are situations in which the country can be, however, uh, an instrument, like it was for Gandhi, it can be an instrument of quitting your ego. Up till a certain level, you can say, you know what? The man or the woman who can give his life for his country, is a man or a woman who is not egoistic anymore, because you can do it for others. Therefore, it is a measure of getting rid of your own egoism. But the one who is like this will never hesitate to go further. For example, when uh, people were angry at Mahatma Gandhi, the fundamentalistic Hindus, they said, Gandhi should have never given freedom to the Muslims, should have never allowed the creation of Pakistan, should... And Gandhi said, I'm going to visit Pakistan, you know. I'm just going. There was full war and everything. And Gandhi phoned to Jinnah and said, I'm going to come to visit you in Islamabad. We are going to walk through the main street and salute the nation, you know. It's kind of, I'm not attached to any nation. I belong to this, but I'm not attached. Jesus, at the same time being a Jew and coming from that environment... He is ready to give his teaching to the whole world. He says, this is not only for our own little pack of wolves. This is something which belongs to God. And therefore, it's for the whole world. Therefore, at some point of the, your evolution, giving, giving up your ego and your personal petty, egoistic interest in the name of, a, of the community can be good. Because it takes you out of a very savage type of egoism. Very very tight. But then if your community provides comfort for you and all the others, then you can high kind of have you have ulterior motives in supporting that community. Because that community is giving me something. And basically, I help you, you help me. I help you because you are of use to me. And that becomes an indirect egoism as well. And that is why. In many cases, you have to analyze exactly where you are in this relationship. If you are a very egoistic person who always does things only for themselves, then it's good to sacrifice yourself for your country, because that will promote selflessness. But if you are trying just to exploit the environment in your country and just to get personal advantages out of it, then it means you are attached to your country and what it gives to you. And you are basically cultivating a pernicious, a a subtle, perverse kind of attachment which has to be broken sooner or later. Remember that many of these people, like the apostles of Jesus, many of them wandered to the earth. For example, Saint Thomas went all the way to India and he went all the way to Malabar or whatever, to Kerala and so on. The Apostle Andrew, he went all the way up to today's Romania, Bulgaria, those parts of the world. Peter and Paul, they went all the way to Rome and small... In those days to travel such lengths was not a joke, because it was not like today that to take an airplane and go. You had to walk by foot, and to walk thousands of kilometers in a critical environment like that is not a joke. And yet all these people... They got dislodged. John the Apostle moved to the island of Patmos where he made his revelations and so on. kind of John was not born of Patmos. He was born, he was the son of Zebedee from Galilee. What should a fisherman from Galilee do in the island of Patmos? Obviously, he was not in his country. He was not with his countrymen, not with his family. None of them actually was. They all were scattered and, uh, in this way. So it happens. Again, I'm saying sometimes there may be exceptions. I'm not saying. Depends where people are placed by the winds of fate. Both the father and the son are Purusha? No. The father is Purusha and Prakriti all together. The father is the Dao, It is the unit of immanence and transcendence it is the unit of Shiva and Shakti. It is what the Kashmir Shahidist calls Parama Shiva. The unit which is above, which means Shiva and Shakti. You mentioned that in the family you had your biggest tests. And someone told me who was in spirituality that you have a lot of problems with your common father. It also symbolizes that in spirituality you have problems with your Master. You don't necessarily follow the Master in the right way. You have almost rejection of God the Father. Do you see some kind of parallel? Well, it's hard to see. I have seen that many spiritual Masters of whom I have heard, their father had died early. It's valid in the case of Jesus It's valid in the case of Ramakrishna. It's valid in the case of many, many others. Ramana Maharishi and many, many others. Their father had died early in their life or they are fatherless. It's an interesting connection. Also, if I remember correctly, Yogananda, but I don't remember absolutely. And others, actually. This I can say. There is definitely a role playing. Uh, maybe we can simply pull the plug from uh, that cable, from this cable. No, 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 this one. This is the green one from here. So you can record further, but it doesn't go there. Because now there is no more wind. And <clears throat> So where were we, what I was talking about? Hello. Yes, sure, there is a symbolism of the father. Abhinava Gupta (coughs) uses it very funnily in one of his books because he speaks about his father and his mother and everybody thinks he is giving biographical details about his what family he comes from and who is his father and mother. And actually he gives a little bit and then he turns the sentence in such a way that actually the sentence turns that he is speaking about Shiva and Shakti. Those are his father and mother the father and the mother of the universe. And in this way, it's the same. Sure, God is somehow having an image of one's father. And maybe we as children, being programmed in a certain way that our father is like this, our mother is like this, maybe we build in our mind some archetypes, some limitation about the cosmic masculine, the cosmic feminine, how we expect them to be. That is definitely possible because we are our mind is shaped by our personal history, by our childhood, school, family and everything that we had there. So there may be a thing there. Uh, the way with proportion and difference Or is it total? Like the, fathers must be in the, absolute. Yeah, the Father is the one in which both are undifferentiated. But so it's not on the individual basis, the Son. No, the Son is a name which works microcosmically as well as macrocosmically. What is up is like whatever is down. And therefore the Son, in the way Jesus speaks about it, it simply represents the cosmic principle of Purusha. But not on the individual basis, in this... In the individual, we also have Atman yeah. and our own mini Prakriti. So it's the same, after all. It's a correspondence. Yeah? How is it possible that Jesus resurrected on the third day yet? Like in bardo. No, he didn't spend in the bardo, but there were, it was necessary to leave some things happen in through the laws of God. That means there are some cycles of the universe after which some things could happen. And he was not willing to violate the laws of God in this way. If you remember, after he resurrects one of the women that is Mary Magdalene wants to give him a hug. And he says, don't touch me, touch me not, because I have not yet ascended to my father. It's like... I'm somewhere in the bardo right now, I'm mean in the light body, I'm in mean some body, and if you touch me now, it will like become, why why he says touch me not? Because obviously there will be a problem, he will feel, it will be like he's stripped and now it feels like very intimate or very too much or whatever. So it's obvious that from that moment on, he is in a certain phase and he goes through that phase all the way, there's no doubt about that. But I mentioned that because this demonstrates once more in Christianity as well, the existence of cycles of 40 days and 49 or 50 days. Because Jesus, after he resurrects, he is ascending to heaven in the 40th day. So that's a cycle. He's standing on earth another 40 days and then it's off. And then after another 10 days, that means in 50 days, there happens the other episode where the Apostles get enlightened. So basically it's two very clear cycles which are confirmed by what we know from Indian Yoga and Tibetan Yoga. That's why some things fit indeed. They show that there are such cycles of nature. When is it in the yoga course or otherwise that we actually get an understanding of what this 49, 7 by 7 really is? It's into that. You get a little bit in the fourth month, when you talk about the chakras and the sub-levels. And then the next time, when you get more about this, is when you study Svara Yoga once, and when you study Kashmir Shaivism second. And these two things are explained about what is the meaning of all these units. So it is enough for now. Let us stop. Delivered by Jesus. We are starting at the 12th chapter from the Gospel according to Matthew. At that time says the text, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he were, when he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is an amazing instance where Jesus clearly states his spiritual status and uh, proclaiming himself Lord of the Sabbath, higher than the temple itself. That means he divides, he already describes certain levels of existence. He describes the level of the human being, of the common human being, that is subjected to the laws, to the strict laws of, in this case, of the religion of the day and he says some people are above the laws this principle